I started running only because there was a club that trained in my suburb and my dad had been a runner, so he let me join. I didn't have any talent and I didn't really like running, but I bonded with one of the runners who was also new to the running club and we would walk together when we were out of eyesight of the coach. He probably knew, but we thought we were getting away with it. That friend was also on a soccer team and started showing up less and less, so I started running more and more. I started to get better at running and eventually I won a race, then another one, and then my dad got interested in my running and I was expected to win. I started to not enjoy racing and I was running scared most of the time. I developed a fear of losing, which eventually led me to quit the sport for several years. In the book that we're reviewing today, there are several stories like this involving elite female runners, and these runners were able to overcome their fears and go on to become amazing performers. Hi, and welcome to Running Book Reviews Podcast, where we review books written for runners, about runners, and by runners to help you decide if you'd like to read the book for yourself. We also hope that listening to us chat about running can help keep you motivated about your own running or maybe inspire you to try something new. My name is Liz, and with my co-host, Alan, we're going to talk with authors Molly Huddle and Sarah Slattery about their book, How She Did It. How She Did It is a compilation of stories from 50 legendary female distance runners spanning six decades. The book starts with a short introductory section, part one, called The Experts. This addresses some key factors you need to pay attention to if you want to perform to your full potential as a female athlete. These are physical health, hormonal health, sound nutrition, and mental health. Part two, The Athletes, is where you find the 50 female athlete profiles. This section is divided into a few subsections, the pioneers, the sort of 60s to 70s, the 1980s, the 1990s, the early 2000s to 2010, and then 2010 to 2020, which is kind of present day. The book ends with a section called The Cooldown, where there is a compilation of funny stories provided by some of the featured athletes. And then there's another section called Favorite Workouts. At the end, you can even test your ability to identify pictures of some of the women as young girls before they became legends. Uh, let me tell you a bit about our um, authors and uh, guests today. Um, Molly Huddle. Molly Huddle is an American long-distance runner who completes in track and cross-country running events, I guess, across the world these days. Um, she set the American record in the 5,000 meters at the 2014 Diamond League meet in Monaco, uh, which has since been lowered. Molly Huddle is a two-time Olympian and holds the American record at 10,000 meters. She placed fourth in the 2018 New York City Marathon in a personal best time of 2.26.44. Besides her impressive running career, she also writes, is there no end to the woman's talents? She also writes for Runner's World magazine and, of course, has written a book, which we're going to talk about today. So I'll tell you a little bit about Sarah. Sarah Slattery is a an American middle and long distance runner who mainly competes on the track. She has represented the United States in the IAAF World Cross Country Championships at both junior and senior levels. After a successful NCAA professional career, Sarah went on to coaching. She's in her eighth season at Grand Canyon University. I think if I... Um, did so the, I just stepped down one? this last season. So I did eight years and um, I'm currently not coaching. Just the balance of our family right now, our kids are getting older. So the, my husband travels quite a bit and I 
was traveling all the time with coaching. So I wanted to be home with the kids more often. Okay. Yeah, that's completely understandable. Anyway, um, you had you had a really great run at uh, Grand Canyon University because it seems that the athletes had broken many school records since you arrived there. So hopefully yes. your legacy will lead, will uh, you know keep on going. Um, so welcome to both of you to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. So I guess uh, the first question would be, and you guys can both answer, or like if one of you wants to answer, it's fine. But how did you two decide to write the book? I'll start. Molly and I, um, we've been friends. Uh, we've known each other since uh, the beginning of college. I think I met Molly her freshman year at the NCAA championships, and I was really impressed Um I think she broke the American junior record that year and we were both in the NCAA final together and we warmed down together. We just talked and we became close friends and then we'd see each other at more meets and we, uh, and then like became closer as like post collegiates and um, both of our husbands, we met in college as well and they're good friends. And so um, Molly started training out in Arizona for, um, for winter training and I grew up in Arizona. So we would be out here around the same time and we'd go for runs and get dinner together and <clears throat> do a lot together. And um, as I got into coaching and like, um, this was like right before pandemic, Molly was out here training and um, we were both talking about, there were some big stories about girls in this, like leaving the sport or having bad, um, bad experiences in the sport. And we would see it all the time. Um, and that was actually like a big reason for me, like in college, like when I was looking at colleges, I want, I really wanted to find a place where girls continue to get better, like throughout their experience in college. And, um, we'd see, so like they had what was called the footlocker curse at the time, uh, like when we were, when we were, um, going through footlocker in the nineties and early two thousands where these footlocker champions, or there'd never been a footlocker champion that had won an NCAA championship until I think, is it Molly Sabell recently? Mm -hmm. um, and um, and then there's only been two that have ever made an Olympic team. And so, but yet on the men's side, it was significantly like there had been 12, like um, more than 20 men that had won NCAA titles. And um, there was, uh, I think, 12 that had made Olympic teams. So significant differences in the genders and so we were like why is that and what are the what are women facing that men aren't what are some things that we can do to like help what are things that we know that have helped us to have long careers um that we could share with others and um and we knew so many women that didn't have those experiences and so we really wanted to like share like how like what are the key pieces to having long careers we could hear that all day long like and for both molly and i we're stubborn uh runners and very motivated but it, we, you could know what you're supposed to do and you could have people tell you what you're supposed to do but unless you see it play out well and others like you you won't adapt it and so we felt like the stories are really important for girls to um hear so that they, they could connect with um these runners that have experienced these things just like them and see that that if you see it through you can have long healthy careers I can definitely see that happening because I mean, I remember when I was in high school and um, like, I think I would relate to that stubbornness because, you know, sometimes 
the coach would say something and I'd just be like, yeah, whatever. Or not so much the coach because the coaches like, you know, they would, they would be there in practice, but they weren't there at home. And uh, so at home, like my, my parents would, would say something, uh, oh, that I should, I don't know, like I need to have meat with my pasta. And I, and I would just be like, no, I don't. (laughs) But if Paula Radcliffe tells you that you eat it, right? Exactly. That's how I would have been. <laughs> yes, exactly. So had I had this book when I was in high school, I probably would have eaten a lot more meat to keep my iron levels up. Yes. Yeah. Just little things like that, that make a big difference. Like, and it's little adjustments that, and I think we feel like this is important for the girls, but also for their parents and their coaches to read so that, that they understand like the influence that they have on, on the athlete. Um, and that knowledge is so important in the way they like the way they they bring them up in the sport is really important too so i think that's like our our key like target is getting girls early like in middle school high school when they're first starting the sport so they start creating these habits early on and that we don't see as many injuries going in like in college and beyond um so that we're it's like preventing those long-term effects and why people are dropping out at that at that time in sport and a lot of it is just those habits those early habits weren't formed in the right in the right way is is the problem kind of solved now do you think we'll see you know we've had the the mary kane incident that was the big big public one but we've had lots and lots of stories now and changes in attitudes of coaching are we going to see girls coming through uh, juniors and transferring their abilities. I guess the one that comes to mind in my head would be um, Caitlin Tui. Seems to have got a handle on what she's doing. I don't know from a distance, but are, are we going to see a better result now? I'm optimistic about that. I think um, you do, like, I know I've still come across, uh, you know, talented high school runners who are sort of stuck in the old cycles of um, maybe underfueling or overtraining or um, just kind of doing too much uh, at like too advanced of training at a young age. And um, so I do think there's, I think like Sarah said, it's more getting that knowledge to the parents. Cause I think sometimes the parents are unaware that that is actually not how you produce a long-term successful athlete. But a lot of the girls like Sarah and I noticed at the national high school national championship, um, you know, we went to go like participate, like help out at it last year. And we do think it's trending in the right direction. It does, you know, not by all means is it, it's not done. There still needs to be more done to make sure these girls are fueling well and are healthy and are, you know, going through puberty at the right times and not having delayed growth spurts and things like that. But like, I do think that messaging is out there loud enough. I think it's more common, the knowledge of the mistakes that, you know, were being made in girls sports in the past, or at least in distance running are more are public enough that college coaches and high level coaches know about them and are steering the girls in the right direction. Um, I think NC State's program does do a pretty good job with that. You know, I think Coach Lori was a professional runner herself. Wasn't she, Sarah? Wasn't Lori? Yeah, she was. Yeah. And so I think she knows those things and are passing them down to the girls and they're having a great season and and healthy and successful in that way. So the more you see of that and the more success they have doing it that way, like, yes, the better it will get. Like you, you featured a lot of athletes in the book. 
how did you decide who to feature? And uh, were there any stories that you maybe wanted to get, but you didn't? Or were there stories that you did get, but then you ended up leaving them out? Um, That was really the hardest part of writing the book was deciding on that. Because honestly, like the amount we we did, we did close to we did 80 interviews. Um, we could have done, we keep thinking of more that we should have done. Like we basically wrote another book <laughs> that got cut. <laughs> I think our main, like Molly, you could maybe touch on what our, our criteria, what we were trying to target for that. But like, we wanted it to be a diverse in terms of, um, like ge- generations. So we wanted to have, we really felt the history, the beginning of the sport is really important so that the girls know where we're coming from. And um, we felt like a lot of those stories were like even the mother daughter stories were really impactful because it showed how much had changed in the sport from the generation their mom was in and to the current generation. So we really wanted to have a history. Um, We felt like having a diverse range of so it's a distance running, but like we really wanted 800 to marathon and we wanted middle distance, distance and long distance in there. So, um, there is different distances. Um, also it's heavily American, but we wanted different ethnicities and backgrounds and we wanted, um, we tried to have different, um, different countries getting the different, um, backgrounds was hard cause we had to translate some of the material. Um, but just understanding that a lot of those same issues that we face in the u.s like a lot of the other countries are facing as well or the different they may face different things that that our girls might not realize but how the sport can unite the a lot of the girls so i think we were trying to it, it will never be perfect there are so many times that molly and i are like oh we should have added this person or we probably could have had 10 more chapters but we uh i think our main criteria was like there had to be a level like had to have made a um, world championship team and raced at a high level and had we wanted them to have a long longish career so showing a long longevity in the sport so th- those were the main things we were looking for okay was it hard was it hard to find the uh the people the right kind of people or did you just start with the people who were like next to you basically yeah i felt like um part of our one of our strengths was that we are close to a lot of these women have raced them and we have their contact info we yeah. and they would say yes to talking to us because we are we're somewhat friendly with almost everyone in the book or have raced them and also pretty much everyone we asked was very happy to like contribute to um basically mentoring via book form <laughs> young female athletes so actually reaching out and getting a hold of everyone was really easy. I think that's why the book, the potential chapter list grew so large because we would just brainstorm and we'd we'd add people and add people. And I mean, I think when the editor asked us to cut women, I actually added like five more (laughs) instead of cutting. (laughs) So, um, so yeah, we found ways to try and try and cut as little information as possible. But one of our questions usually at the end is, um, you know, do you have any ideas for another book? But it looks like you've got another book. Um... It's already made. We actually did audio in like um, verbal interviews with everyone first and transcribed yeah. them. So we thought we, it would be cool to make a podcast season out of it. We just we haven't done it yet or something like that. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of material to work with. Oh, that's, that's pretty amazing. good. I think that was the best part was interviewing. All, like these are a lot of women that we looked up to as well. And so getting to interview them and hear their stories 
we would compete against them, but like in our era, there wasn't the social, there wasn't social media and um, the outlets like there are now. So we would go to the line and we'd get to have dinner with them or things, but we didn't get to know the other side of like really what got them there, any obstacle, like a lot of the obstacles that they faced or things that the hurdles. So it was interesting to hear those sides of the, those sides of that, those athletes and understand the human side of them as well. We see from your website that you you had a sort of standard question set that you that you went through because you published that on your on your blog. Um, yeah. But in fact, when you look at the the um, each section for each athlete, they're actually quite different. They have sort of general themes, but some people focus a lot on one thing versus another thing, and they actually all came out quite varied. I think. Yeah, I I was worried maybe people would just yeah it would be like short answers with very similar like my struggle was injury or something like yeah. that over and over again. And we did have a lot of overlap. That's part of the things we edited out. It would be if they were just very similar, but people spun off into direction, deeper directions. And we got a lot of really good storytelling just off of like one or two questions. So yeah, it was, it was great. Is there anybody that really is really burning that you kind of would love to include, but couldn't for some reason? One that I regretted not reaching out to is Benita Johnson or Benita Willis from Australia. Um, I think she was, um, she's actually a close friend, but she, um, she was one of the first, she won world cross uh, very young and had a really long career, holds many Australian records. And uh, she was just a really tough, tough athlete, but also like handle, I don't know. I just, I, I felt like her story was really good. It would have been a good one to add. I, I would have liked to talk to um, Castor Semenya or Francine Nian-Saba yeah. just because yeah. their experience is something like you see in the news a lot, but it's such a different struggle. And, you know, we have DSD athletes or even um, like transgender or non-binary athletes out there. And we want the book to be something that athletes can see themselves in. And not that, all of those athletes are under the female category, but Castor and Francine are, and Francine, like they didn't really want to talk publicly. I think they've been very like burned by a lot of the media that mm -hmm. they've done. So I totally understood, but we did try to reach out and I hope they write their own books <laughs> soon. So maybe when it's really all finished and enough time has gone by, we'll, we'll get the whole story from those people. Yeah. I hope so too. You know, on a personal note, I have, uh, I have uh, one of my children's transgender, so um, I was kind of looking for that, and I, I, I um, saw that you um, you spoke with Nikki, Nikki Hilt, yes, yeah. who's an advocate for LGBT, which was cool. Mm -hmm. um, did you target these people, or did they just pop out as you were like? Did did you target Nikki for that reason? Well, she would have been on our list regardless of her being um, yeah. non like. But she she made she made the cut to be in the book, I guess. Yeah, she's well qualified as an athlete, but also her um, her as a person, like in her, like what she's dealing with, like I think brings out like it. It's we really wanted to have her so that other girls could or other transgenders could like identify with her and understand the struggles that she's dealing with as well. So I think I think twofold, like she's an amazing athlete, as, like regardless of what she is. <laughs> yeah, and I know um, with Nikki. It's how she did it. And I know Nikki is, her pronouns are they, them, but they've said before that they feel very comfortable and in, in, in they race in the women's category. Um, okay. And we're really, 
they were very happy to talk with us about what they work on with the Trevor project and what it's like competing and what it's been like their journey so far. So we just know there's other athletes like them out there looking to them and really seeing an important role model. And we wanted that for the whole book. We, we think the book is um, like one of the reasons we wrote it, Sarah and I were talking about is there's like, I felt like in my career, I was lucky to have a group of really good role models that I joined after college. And um, I learned so much from the women in the group I was training with. And we hoped this book would be sort of like a, a little package of mentors for, <laughs> for girls in case they couldn't interact with or get that advice and experience from someone around them. It would be cool to just at least have these voices in the book and like Sarah said, they're so impactful when there's someone you look up to and who's excellent at what they do too. Yeah. The other one that struck me was Sarah Vaughn, um, mm -hmm. managing to have a baby while studying, while developing an athletic career. And, and also just the way that she was kind of almost when she got pregnant, like almost, um, almost brushed off to the side, like had she just let herself listen to the messaging that she was getting, like it could have turned out really different. Yeah, I think like at the time they didn't know what to do, like the university or and they were just like, whatever you need, you can continue or you cannot continue. And they didn't think that she would, they kind of advised her to not really continue. And mm -hmm. Sarah, I think Sarah sought that out on her own and she actually got the NCAA. I think what was interesting is she saw that as an opportunity to help others as well as herself and changed it it really she helped change legislation in the NCAA regarding pregnancy helping like provide help while girls are like going like extra they get extra, an extra season they also get like help with finishing their education so the, the, the that was a huge she had a huge impact on pregnant young women in the NCAA and she's now she now has a foundation that's providing childcare to help um girls who like mothers in um, not just athletes, but um, mothers in education. And she's still setting PRs today too, which is amazing. <laughs> she's like moved up in distance and set PRs all the way, like all along the way, even while she's had her family. That's amazing. And and finished school, which also seemed like it was almost like she was being told like, oh, well, usually when girls get pregnant, they don't finish school. And she, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. Like she was getting those messages and finished anyway. Yeah. She's pretty amazing. And her husband, she and her husband like really worked together to, they were both on the team and like, I know it wasn't, it wasn't easy for either of them. Like they, they both worked hard to, um, make sure that they finished and they both like continued their careers. So, um, I guess we can kind of talk about social media because uh, like some of these athletes like Molly Seidel are pretty well known because, you know, we have social media now. Um, I think social media also has like a bad rap because, you know, it can be very toxic. And um, so you kind of get this idea that it's a negative thing. But in your book, you actually mentioned that it can be a positive place where, you know, you, you can get a lot of inspiration and and motivation and so I was wondering if you have any tips for, uh, you know, like, let's say for younger people that are navigating that space to make it a more positive experience. Do you want to go, Molly? Yeah, Sarah, I don't know if I have tips because I'm just thinking like if I had a 15 year old daughter, I would probably 
tell her not to have social media yet. <laughs> yeah, my, my husband and I have this discussion all the time, like when we're yeah. going to allow our kids to have phones or be on social media. And like, I'm so glad I didn't have it in high school. Yeah. I, <laughs> Me I, too. And the time, the amount of time that can be wasted on that, like doing things. Yeah. Like a lot of the girls and well, any anyone at that age, I wonder just if they're mentally ready to like filter through that they know it's a highlight reel that they know it's, you know, not to compare themselves. I don't know if it's possible at that age to like have that awareness. But obviously, you would want to follow all your favorite athletes, I'd be on there following like, you know, like Lynn Jennings and Joan Samuelson and whoever was on. So um, because I remember like Sarah and I also part of the motivation for, for writing the book was like, we would scour the media, like newspapers and magazines for information on our favorite female athletes. And there wasn't, there wasn't like, there wasn't, it was all male centered. So there were very few like where books or articles, like where you could find information on women's running. So if you did, I just like would read over it and over. I remember Susie Favor had a book and I had um, like, I I don't know. I went, I, I would clip out art articles all the time. So I think with social media though, I think, I don't know. I think you want to have positive, positive people that post things that are realistic. Um, so like, at, like having the athletes, like, I think it would be a great thing for if they're in, you know, if they're in athletics to like keep in touch with each other, like Molly and I knew each other through some of the national meets and stuff like that. So it's a way to keep in touch. I used to write letters to the people <laughs> or email, <laughs> Um, some of my friends. Um, so it's a it's a more like um, very rapid way of communication where you can keep in touch. Um, it's okay, so it's okay, Sarah. You know, um, I come from the era of fax machines. And- <laughs> yes, <laughs> I know. I well, I try to get my kids to do a pen, pen pals, and they're like, it takes like a week for this to get. To- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. When you have something in the mail, and you look in the mail, um, it's fun. Yeah. So, but I just think creating like, and, and I think it's imperative just like for social, to make it a healthy way, like finding positive role models that you can follow and positive and positive people in your life. Don't follow people that create negative content or unrealistic goals or things that aren't true, you know? So I think that has to come also from your parents and like talking to them about what, what is good and what is like, what is reality and what is fake on social media and, and having like having positive role models, like some of these athletes would be great. Um, but it is, it's difficult to like navigate those things. I, I, I'm still like figuring out that balance. We're still in the wild, wild west and the new, new uh, beginnings of social media and things and trying to navigate what's healthy and what's not. So I think just like a small doses of it to keep in touch with people is great. I guess you can't, what you can't do is you can't, eventually you have to lift up the curtain and all the access is there. So at some stage, you've got to have educated people to deal with that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's part of coaching. I yeah. guess if they're elite, it is part of coaching. If if you're an elite person, because you have a lot of focus, you know, it's part of, par- certainly part of parenting. You've got to teach your kids how to do it. So, because there's no way you can avoid that they're going to be exposed. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's definitely something that is, I feel like it is a part of an athlete's life. Like it's something that's in all of our lives now. And I'd say like, 
as a young athlete, you might be comparing your performances and your trajectory to someone else's. You're already like very hyper aware at that age. And so you do have to, I think, be armed with a way to manage it. But like Ailish McCulgan said in the book too, like girls can DM her with questions, which is wonderful, like that you're that accessible. Mm -hmm. So it's real. it is a double-edged sword that um, I hope there's some kind of like protocol going forward, <laughs> like some kind of like, this is what you tell your kids. This is how you, you know, get your athletes yeah. that you coach to not be harmed by it. That would be so great. But I feel like, you know, two people can see the same post and not feel the same way about it, which is like really difficult because you can, like, I think of myself, like, let's say I had a mini me from, you know, 1995 sitting beside me and we were both looking at like, um, you know, Sarah Hall and how fast she just ran. And my previous self would have probably been like, oh, I'll never be that good. And I would be down about that. And my current self is like, yeah, you go, Sarah Hall. Like, I'm totally inspired by you because like, you're kind of almost my age. So, <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's so and it's it's like that with everything, I think, on social media, like, you know, two people can look at a post and um, and you just read through the comments. And sometimes like, you know, two people will have seen the same post and some, one of them will be like, oh, this is so great. Yeah, I tried the same thing. And then the other one will be like, oh, this is really bad advice and nobody should nobody should l listen to this. So it's uh, yeah, it's really interesting. <laughs> um you know, on the, um, well, it's not really social media related, but um, just talking about people that are inspirational. Uh, it seems that in the 2010 to 2020 section, there were several women that ended up like training with um, or being inspired by Shalane Flanagan, and they credit her for helping them adjust to pro running. Um, do you think that like, that's kind of, you know, it just seemed like Shalane's name popped up several times. But is it sort of a, a common thread where, you know, women runners try and help each other? Yeah, I, I think for so long there, like, I mean, women's distance running has, like, really, I mean, Shalane's mom was in that era where she had, like, the first women's scholarship. Um, and then they really didn't have equal events um, across the board and well, like 1984 was when they brought the marathon and it wasn't until like 2004 that they had the steeplechase. So like really like women's distance running is so far behind men. And for a long time, men trained together and they were in training groups and they trained, like did a lot of things. And we had that in the college system for a while, but they, we didn't have it in the, the professional system. Like when I was graduating, there were like very few training groups to go to. And so you're kind of navigating this world where you didn't really, you're trying to figure out like, should I go, like, are there other girls to train with? Like there was like two groups. There was one in Mammoth and Ray Tracy where um, Molly was at and then like one in Minnesota. And so outside of that, now there's like so many more options and a lot more women doing that together and you're seeing huge benefits from it. And they're creating good, healthy environments where girls are like, pushing each other, but recovering well together, fueling well together, like making, like going after big goals, like a, a like a positive thing in their, their group. And so I think, um, Shalane had a huge impact cause she didn't have, like, she was on her own for a long time. Um, and she joined like Jerry's group that was mostly men and she kind of brought in some women to help her like Kara and, um, Lisa Knoll and uh, I think Emily Enfield also were the few, the first few women that came with her 
But I think she really craved having that because she saw the impact that it had on the other men that she was training with and how they, like she had Matt Tegenkamp, Chris Linsky, um, Evan Yeager. There's a, a ton of guys in Jerry's group that were training together and benefiting from that week after week. And she was kind of on her own. And so that, that she wanted that. She she wanted that as well. So then starting the Bowerman Babes and then continuing that and helping with the coaching and bringing more girls in. And, and she's they've gotten back to the college level which will be interesting too. But I think that's a huge, it has a huge impact. And I think more and more girls are seeing how positive Molly is a huge example of that too. And I think she can explain her situation and how that was impactful for herself. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, Shalane definitely like a lot of the women that were talking about Shalane um, helping guide them are the women from the Bowerman group uh, in the book. We talked to a lot of those women and, um, in my own group, Kim Smith was probably like the Shalane for us, guiding us through healthy training, healthy fueling, how to rest, how to train hard, making us less afraid to train hard. And just kind of like she and Shalane both were just very, um, they would go back and forth a lot in races and finish close together and just show us how good you could be. Like, I think we were a lot of women were looking up to them and thinking, wow, like it's been a while since, well, Kim's from New Zealand, but with Shalane, I know for the American girls, it's been a while since an American woman was able to get that medal or do that, you know, run that fast. Like it really was motivating for that whole like generation of athletes. So, um, and it is interesting to look back on, you know, the mother daughter interview with Shalane and her mom, like her mom had to deal with so much. Um, she had to spend so much energy constructing her own opportunities and her own, even her own gear, her own everything. Um, and then you see, you know, once all that's put into place, her daughter could just spend all her energy on being great at running and look what that turned into. She was such an inspiration for, for a whole generation of athletes. So um, that stuff really makes a difference. It's kind of the same for, I guess, for Liz and Alish McCulgan, um, which is the other sort of mother daughter uh, interview that you did. It's, it's, it's incredible, really, when you look at one generation, how much difference there is between the, uh, what would you call it, the sort of playing field that the early pioneers and just in the 70s. Yeah. You know, I was already at, I was already at college. So during that period. So it's, it's incredible the difference. There's, a, there's, a, there's an amazing difference in terms of what's developed over one generation for women's running, even events. You know, there was, no, there was no marathon. There was no, there was no Olympic long distance events. There were no training programs designed. The people were running with the guys. Um, however, they didn't have uh, social media pressures. They didn't have contracts to uh, have to try to win and then behave according to the contractual requirements. So, are, are things so much easier now? after one generation or are they mostly easier or are they in fact in some ways worse? I mean, I think it's just, you're seeing a big advancement and obviously some of it's the shoe technology, but like you're seeing a lot of times go down on the women's side as far as world records and American records and the half and the marathon on the track. And I think some of it is just like the women can spend their energy just racing and being good. <laughs> and they have all this pooled mm -hmm. information from generations. Like it hasn't been that long I mean, anyone complaining about like the depth of, you know, for example, in the NCAA cross country, like there are, there's talk that, oh, like the depth on the women's side, just, it's not as deep as the men's and it's, well, we start, you know, a lot of that is because the women started later. And so every generation we're going to get, you know, exponentially better until we catch up with sort of the length of time that the men have had to 
be good distance runners. And I think we're also like, I think what's happening now is we're sort of fine tuning the training and the approach um, and to the time appropriate timelines for female athletes. And we're seeing that really pay off too with great performances. So yeah, I think you're going to see a lot of records be broken by the female athletes going forward. I noticed that um, you put one of the uh, original pioneers, Paddy Catalano Dillon, uh, on the front page. Was that, yeah. a, was that a conscious choice or was it just a good photograph? It's a great photograph. It certainly yeah. is. <laughs> it's both. I mean, she's a pioneer in, like, in breaking through like a lot of the barriers for women early on in the sport. But, yeah, just that finished photo is a, a great photo and mm-hmm. encompasses a lot of what, I don't know, we're trying to show in the book. Yeah, the the designer sent it to us and just the vibe of the photo, like the emotion of the photo, I was like, okay, that's what we want for the book. It's like empowering and barrier breaking and motivating. Like it's a great photo. It certainly works because I went, I picked the book up and went, wow, who's that on the front? (laughs) Yeah. I didn't know. You didn't didn't know. know I was afraid some people might think it was a book about Patty because she was on the cover, but sadly Mm -hmm. not everyone has the face recognition for Patty Catalano, (laughs) but they will after they read it, they'll know Patty. Yeah. (laughs) Was there um, anything that really stood out to you in the stories? Like anything that, you know, you mentioned that you had to sometimes maybe cut out things that were um, that were too similar in the stories. Like, was there a common thread that you noticed in most athletes, like either mindset or uh, that they, you know, all, everybody that um, had a long career maybe uh, didn't start off in running, you know, like they didn't specialize early or anything like that? Yeah, I think that that was a big theme for us was that most of these girls um, were multi-sport athletes. We calculated it, didn't we, Molly? It was close to 90% of the women in this book um, started out in other sports and played multiple sports before before college. And, and then when we were doing the first part of the book, when we were talking about bone health and our, like, Dr. 1040 had done the stress fracture study and found that your... 60% less likely to have a bone injury if you played a ball sport before high school. So that that was pretty cool to see that and see that a lot of the women that had longevity in the sport had played multiple sports. Um, a lot of those themes, like we really wanted to be seen through the book and um, have parents understand. So that's why we want to give this to, to girls when they're younger and the parents when they're younger so they know this information and can encourage their young girls not to specialize too early and to figure out what they're good at and and play many different like try a lot of different things so that they um they work on different things uh work on different muscle groups play team sports play ball sports you know like all these things that will help them long term maybe they will be a great runner but like in if they do want to become a runner they'll be more versatile and have longer careers and have better bone density and have less likely to be injury prone um, yeah to enable that yeah did you see another theme molly um well i was going to just piggyback off of that theme and say um i don't know if you all found that obvious that or like as a parent like of course you would have your kids try multiple sports to see what they like and then you know they're just getting those other um, movements in it, like as a side effect, but I actually have talked to some parents who like have very young kids and they'll like proudly show me their 10 mile results. And I'm like, uh. I, I don't know that that's the best way. Like I it happened to me recently that a parent showed me that their 
young child was a an age group record holder in the 10 mile and and it was a pretty young athlete like single digits of age and i was i think that's what maybe they think is um the trajectory for like being a great runner and it's actually the opposite i think it's probably better to try other sports and um not be training that much at that age and so it, do, it does happen it is and i think it's just a little misguided i don't think it's intended to be like poor parenting or coaching so um that's why you know it's it's an important theme to point out even though it may seem obvious to some other uh athletes or parents and then another theme that jumped out was um just like how many athletes dealt with um performance anxiety or maybe like not enjoying the sport as much until they kind of faced that part of the sport and got some sports psychology coaching tips or broke through that barrier in that way. And we think of, I think elite, elite athletes being immune to that or just knowing how to, you know, they're born just knowing how to handle it. And a lot of them, um, like Hazel Clark, you know, never figured it out despite running so well and said she could have enjoyed the sport more and probably run faster. She, she was convinced it was limiting even though she still did so well. And I think that's maybe something people don't expect, you know, when everything looks great from the outside um you could still be dealing with something like that and i think that's really relatable to a lot of ath- a lot of female athletes a lot of athletes in general so that was something that came out a few times in the book besides hazel's story that was it's kind of surprising but like fairly common once you go through all the stories i see yeah. liz, i see liz picked that out on her question list almost exactly just what you yeah. said we were going to ask you the exact question about it and we, and we were going to ask you well could you give do you have any tips for for parents or or young athletes with performance anxiety? With performance anxiety. I mean, I noticed Emma Coburn was, as a youngster, was fraught with that as well. Which is so surprising to me because she's yeah. such a cool customer yeah, on the track now. So like she's, she's like unflappable. Mm. Like the barrier could be the wrong height. They could, like she's got it. She doesn't get, yeah. Yeah. So it's amazing to see that you can come through that. I think for parents is identifying those things early on if they see those things happening and discussing it with their kids and like, why why they feel that way and are they like figuring out ways to um if they don't know how to do it like maybe talking to someone that can help them with get overcoming that and maybe it's it's like testing in smaller stages to where they can get to the big stage and not feel as um much anxiety um so practice and then yeah just mental cues and things like that but i think identifying it early on and taking care of it is like probably the best thing. And so that um, just as my kids are starting sport, seeing them get tested and like not being able to do anything for a few years with COVID and then being put in situations where like they're racing for the first, like my kids are doing swimming and they play soccer and football and baseball. But like when we're at a swimming and never not raced for so long, I remember them not wanting to go to the meet and then, getting through that and figuring it out and then doing it and then realizing they're good and they can get better. And I think it's just steps. Like, so I don't know, I think you, you have to like watch your, your kids and see how they handle those situations. And if it is like hampering their performance and discussing ways like that could help them um, overcome those things. And uh, I was going to say, there's some tip, more concrete tips from an expert in the book too, from Roisin McGettigan in the, early chapters, who's a, a counselor and um, sports psychology expert. I think also the message is that because of all these like high level women that dealt with 
the performance anxiety. It it doesn't mean that because your child or you have that issue that you can't uh, overcome it or that you're not destined to be good at running or at any sport, basically. Well, like the, the mental side is as big as the physical side in many cases. And so like understanding that part and navigating it together is huge because it affects not just you'll see it on the you'll see it in running but it'll affect you and other parts of your life the same way so handling yeah it. sorry <laughs> my dog he's like oh he's like burying a bone right next to me <laughs> or a sock or something it's like here's rusty i didn't oh. realize we we're all bringing our dogs on the podcast oh, i brought so my dog say hi to speedy <laughs> <laughs> they, have, they haven't met yet but they will soon I know. <laughs> um, next month your dog's called speedy yeah we just got him this summer our kids named him speedy so cute. That's cool. <laughs> what's your dog called molly uh he came with the name rusty and we just didn't okay. change it so he's rusty yep <laughs> that's cool i have a, I have a small i have a small dog he's called killian oh. uh, like the killian Jone. Yeah, the, the, the trail runner. runner. Yeah, oh, the yeah. ultra runner. Except yeah. most normal people, like they don't know that Killian is an ultra runner. So they're just like, oh, that's yeah. a cool name. <laughs> Isn't it Irish though, too, Killian? That's that's usually why they say, oh, are you Scottish or are you Irish? <laughs> so I guess uh, I don't, maybe we should talk about the the Mary Kane story a little bit. Um, you didn't feature Mary Kane, but uh, you did feature another, I think a lot of listeners anyway, they, they know the Mary Kane story because um, even non-runners uh, probably saw it in the New York Times. In your book, you featured another runner who trained under Alberto Salazar and was kind of subjected to the same opinions about weight um, that, that Mary Kane was that led kind of to her like just not thriving. And um the difference was that uh, this other athlete discovered she had celiac and she just seemed to, I wouldn't say not be affected by what her coach was telling her about losing weight and being too heavy. It's just she didn't believe that that was the reason why she was not performing and she pursued her, like her own trajectory and ended up actually finding out she had celiac disease and and turning that around uh, to benefit her. So I don't know if you have any tips for female athletes who might be getting those kinds of messages from their coach, because, you know, that is, I mean, it's a common, we still hear it, like even from like some of our training partners that, oh, it's, it's, it's all about like power to weight ratio. And so if you lose weight, then, you know, you're going to be better. But um, that's, that's not how it works. So I don't know if you have any tips for females that might be getting that message as well. Yeah. I, I say like in running culture, that's maybe a holdover that needs to change. I think it's a misconception that you can see fitness. And I think it's one of the ways that the sport really doesn't fit female athletes because, you know, obviously as women, you're meant to hold body fat in different areas and different percentages of it to be like hormonally healthy. Like it's actually very important for your hormonal health and therefore your performance and your energy levels and your power to have um, a healthy weight and to try and achieve a certain look that maybe is like what the men end up looking like when they're training hard. And, and the men, to be honest, a lot of them are probably under fueling too, but I just think for women, it's, um, 
we're just meant to look a little different. And so it's not at odds with the sport. I think that that kind of um, advice and that kind of coaching is something that definitely needs to change. And um, we hope that the women in the book, even though they're at peak fitness, like, and it took years and years to get there, like there is a variety of body types. There's very strong women and there's like all different extremes of shapes and sizes performing at the top level. And it really just matters that you're healthy and you're putting the work in. We like, I always think of weight as being like a side effect of the training and not something that you try and achieve to become fit. It's just, um, you know, very far down on one of the very important variables for training. And so fueling would be very high above that fueling well, uh, recovery, training hard, um, sports like, like I would put almost everything ahead of that (laughs) variable of weight. So, um, you know, you really just can't see things like, VO2 max or your lung capacity or your red blood cells. And that's what matters in fitness. Um, Sarah, I don't know, like in the coaching, like how did you deal with that as a coach? I I tried to make like uh, menstrual cycles and fueling and all of these things, like a regular part of our conversation when I was talking with my athletes, both male and female, because I both, I had I saw issues on both sides. Like, yeah. So I think I have both men and women that, that will like that dealt with, um, under fueling and the women are luckier because we have, we have markers with our menstrual cycle that tells us when we're, when we're, um, not fueling properly, but men don't get that biomarkers. So yeah. it's, um, it's harder on the men's side because it'll, it'll pop up in different ways. So they'll have iron deficiencies or, um, lethargy or not performing well or different symptoms. So same symptoms, but they don't have the menstrual cycle to like be a really marker. So I think just having, making those conversations not uncomfortable and making it a regular part of, um, your coaching conversation with them and then making feeling a priority as a coach like and figuring out those ways with the athletes so that they understand the impact that has on their training and their um, performance long-term, um, is really, really important and not, not making it hard for your athlete to come talk to you about certain, certain things is important too. So, um, so they feel comfortable that they can, they can have a conversation with you. I was going to say too, it's like a critical age to know this stuff too, like the high school, um, junior high, high school age, because I think we touched on it in the book with some of Dr. 1040s research, but like at that age, you're building bone. And if you're under fueling that, that you'll carry that bone loss with you later in life. And so we really need coaches to be aware that like, if they're pushing a message that would cause an athlete to under fuel that can real like at that age, that's actually um, got a long-term impact. Yeah, the I the first section of the book where uh, like before you featured the athlete profiles, you had um you had a section that went over like four topics: physical health and injury prevention, hormonal health, um, nutrition, and then mental health. And um, you did it does mention somewhere in there that like most of your bone density is acquired, I think, before the age of like eighteen. I guess a good thing with runners is um, we tend to be, I think we tend to be fairly open about various bodily functioning when you're training, et cetera. So the conversation is maybe easier to have. I know the only people I talk to about, you know, menstrual cycles and things like that are not my daughters, <laughs> but um, 
but sometimes fellow runners. I think making this um, a really not uncomfortable, like just a normal part of conversation. And for so long, like it wasn't easily discussed among people. It was like hard or uncomfortable. And so it's, yeah, it's just like a normal bodily function. Um, And if you make it like that, then it's not, you can make it less uncomfortable for people so that they know, all right, um, is my iron up? Am I, you know, like, am I getting enough sleep? Is my, do I have my period this week? Did I, you know, all these things. So it's just like normal part of your checklist and not just like an uncomfortable situation that you're afraid to talk to your mom about. Was there anything specifically that, that really surprised you when you made the book that, that you maybe didn't, you know, you, you're athletes. So you would have thought, um, okay, uh, there's probably going to be a lot of conversation about injuries and coming back from injuries and not coming back very well from injuries. And there's probably going to be talk about, you know, certain things that are just part and parcel of being an elite athlete. But was there anything that surprised you? I think just the more athletes, like the more women told their stories, the more you saw that their trajectory wasn't like as direct as maybe it looked if you're a fan watching, you know, you really only are drawn, your attention is drawn to the person winning and you don't notice the person having the bad day or the person just starting. And and when they tell you and take you through it, I think it helps. It would help as a young athlete to realize, okay, like, especially as a woman, you look at all these female trajectories, they might not look like the men's where it's like you get to college and you're, you're getting better, better, better. You might take a little bit of a slump Mm. as you know, maybe you're developing or maybe you battle something and you, you come out of it. And that's what you want the women to see, like stay in it, stay in the sport, whether you're going to be an elite athlete or not, we think you gain so much from having that in your life. And, um, you know, if you can see these women battling through the rough patches and coming out the other side and having this great body of work, you know, at, you know, age 38 or 39 or 40. And um, we want that to be what what is mirrored and what's told. Yeah, I don't, this is a positive a positive spiel for for um, for social media. And I, I don't do it very often, but you were talking about, you know, you only see the, you only see the trajectory uh, the from outside. You only see the sort of the winds and then you join a, dot, a, a dotted line to the winds and you go, whoa, they're just going up. You don't see the valleys in between because they're not publicized by the media. I remember sending a, um, a DM to, um, is it Laura Thweet? Because she came fourth in the, um, when Alephine Tuliamuk won the, um, qualifying, the yeah. qualifying marathon trials. She came fourth and I was watching it live on TV and they just came along. She just finished fourth and just lost her Olympic dream. And media arrive and they stick a microphone in her face and say, how do you feel? And she was so fantastic in terms of um, composed and almost through the tears, able to be coherent. And um, I thought that was an incredible um, performance to some extent, to, to have it all together, to be able to do that. And you don't see that very often. There must be, for every one gold medal, there's probably 50 of those. And and it's true, you, you, you kind of don't see it. And I was really full of admiration for the lady to be able to do that. I noticed as well that the guy who came forth never gave any interviews and left and never spoke to anyone, um, was kind of unable to do it. And I, I wouldn't blame him. I think I'd probably be him if I was in the same situation. But that's probably what, the one area where I have something positive to say for social media in terms of supporting an athlete. I was able to see that and and not just join the dots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, 
Shout out to Laura. She is a lovely person, so I'm not surprised that she was able to do that. She's very um, inspiring and supportive fellow Saucony athlete. Um, but yeah, that's that's also why like we start. I started a podcast about women's sports because you know a lot of the times the people that only only people that get to tell their stories are the top three or the medalists, and there's there's just so many wonderful role models in the sport that maybe are just a step or two outside the limelight. So. Yeah, we can tell our own stories on social media, but I don't know, like the access is great. We liked Sarah, Sarah and I talked a little bit about whether a physical book would be kind of redundant with like what people the access there is to, to the for these high school and middle middle school aged girls um, on social media. And we just mm -hmm. thought the book would be sink in a little slower. It'd be a little more of a permanent fixture. They could pick it up and put it down. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of a side note on just like what like why the book was a little bit special even though they have access to these athletes technically at the at their fingertips with their phones. Yeah, but I think also it, it broadens their horizons, like it broadened mine because, you know, like, yes, we have social media, but we'll follow the people that we know about. What about all these great women that I didn't know about, you know, like, mm -hmm. like the one on the cover? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just, uh, I think it, it's, uh, it's great. And then also from previous generations, because their journey was not documented on social media. I mean, you can find YouTube videos, but you have to know their name first. I think the, be I think the beauty about having a book as well is that you can dip into it and find things that you're not necessarily looking for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. I know there are female athletes in there. So let me just flick, flick through and, and read one if I have time. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll we'll give our summary probably after we've said goodbye to you, and we don't want to keep you for, for for all of our blah blah at the end. But you know, one of the things I say in my summary is it's kind of a coffee table book as well as an education process. Um, you can have it lying around and just pick it up and read one story because the stories are so short and concise. Um, mm -hmm. You get learning, but you also find out things that maybe you weren't you weren't originally looking for. Um, I think it'd be a great, like, it's a bedtime storybook for your kids, too. Like, when you read to your daughter or your son. Like, I, my dad would always read me books about athletes and different things when I was growing up. And a lot of them are men. So it's kind of cool to have, like, short stories on women as well. And yeah. they're inspirational, so it's kind of cool. Yeah, I one of my favorite books in college was Best Efforts by Kenny Moore. And it was all these little, it was like this book. It has a lot of, lot of little chapters, but it was like 70% male runners, 30% female. It was like something like that is what the way the chapters were divided up. And I remember wanting more of the women's stories. But um, that Run With the Champions book too was similar. And I loved all the little PRs on the side. I would study all my favorite athletes' PRs and just be like amazed. And <laughs> they almost had us edit those out of the book. And I was like, no, well, for the little running nerd, the little running nerds out there like I was, yeah. would love no. those little Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Like, no way. That, I mean, that's one of the highlights. Like, it was so cool to see every time you start a new story, you'd see like their, and it wasn't just their pro PRs like you had kind of broken it down into like if they had high school PRs you'd write those in and then their college PRs and then their pro PRs which I thought was like really cool because you could even you know see their progression and see that you know in high school they were like they ran times that are very attainable and that probably like a lot of high school runners can aspire to running so 
Um, and then they went on to become like much faster. So I thought that was, uh, I, I think, I think it was good that you fought to keep that in there. The, the, the thing that discouraged me was um, the training programs, how you had some of the speeds, you had some suggested favorite training programs and some of the speeds at which you were doing them. I was like, <laughs> oh yeah, 1K repeats, that, lo- that looks good, let me see. And then I see how fast you're going around. I go, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I will say, I hope high school and um, middle school girls aren't trying to do those workouts. I yeah. just remember I w- the that run with the champions book I loved in high school also had some sample workouts. And I, again, it was like the PRs. I just looked at them and was like, wow, one day maybe I could do that. That's so inspiring. <laughs> but that was like, that was a big push for Molly and I in this book like like that the publishers didn't quite understand like I think is really important for girls like when they're reading this like we got to show the transformation like the progression in the times from high school college and pro we all want we actually are we envisioned having three pictures of each woman from high school college to pro so that they could see like the transformation that it took time that they were normal high school girls and then they like as they trained more, got, you know, like they became these professional machines, but like, it didn't just happen overnight that it took, you know, it mm-hmm. took time and that, yeah. So making them more human and having girls see that they, most of those things are attainable. It just, it took time and training and effort to get to where they were. Do you have a favorite? Is there one that you think, oh, that's pretty neat? Because I do, and I, I might tell you my favorite after you tell me yours. I don't, I don't <laughs> want to say favorite, but I think um, from a fan standpoint, I loved talking to Lynn Jennings because she's <laughs> one of the athletes I idolized. So for me to have an excuse okay. to call her was like the best day of 2020 yeah. for me, basically. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're finding out at the moment just talking to you two we i i think for me my favorites were both elish and liz mcculkin and um shalane um and her mom cheryl because i think it was just so cool to see the generational change the like the differences and what they they dealt with and their their careers like um that was really i don't know that was really um interesting for me to read like hear about and then read like I think Cheryl needs to write her own book. Um, the the amount of things that she did in her career, like she she patented the first sports bra, which is incredible because they didn't really have any equipment for women. So and so she was like, "We need some. We need a bra that's not a underwear yeah. bra while we're running." So I guess I'll make it. Yeah. And uh, some of the articles that were written about her and how they had to write them to make people so called wanting to hear her story or read it or um, you could never see them. What was the headline? I can't remember. Pretty Cheryl. Pretty Cheryl tries running. That was an article <laughs> written about her. When she she had just run. She had run the world record, but she's trying running. Yeah. So it was. Um, it was just like jaw dropping a little bit hearing like the the way things were dealt with then, but mm. um, and then to see what Shalane has been able to do is pretty awesome. What was your favorite? My favorite is my favorite is actually Kim Connolly. Kim Connolly is an athlete I'd never heard of before I read the book. I know that's shocking. I'm embarrassed to to admit, but um, what I liked about reading the article about her was the way she didn't have any records going through college, but she just kept chipping away. And she had like a 16 year PR streak where she just kept incrementally just inching, inching, inching. And then she said, 
described her qualification for the Olympics at the 5,000 meters in Eugene in 2012. And she describes it to you guys in the book. And I was reading it and I was thinking, oh my God, where's YouTube? Find. I was going to say, race. if you find haven't found race. that race, go watch it. Yeah. Oh, I, Alan's I, found it and he's <laughs> shared it with everybody. I watched the race. I thought, oh my goodness. Send it to Liz quick. Liz, look at this. Yeah. Send it to everybody. Look at this. And then I thought, oh, I have to watch it again. Uh, I have to watch it and ignore the people. Who's that Molly girl running at the front? Ignore her. <laughs> That's not where the story is in that race. Ignore her. Watch the people at the back. It was just, uh, it was absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, Paula Radcliffe is by far my my idol because of the UK connection. And I was at the Sydney Olympics when she was running at 10,000 meters, actually in the stadium. So I have like fondness for Paula. But the story of Kim Connolly was absolutely mind-blowing. And if you've never seen for all our listeners, if you've never seen the qualification race, which well done, Molly, you qualified uh, <laughs> handsomely in, in that race, but where Kim Connolly breaks the simultaneously breaks the A, the A uh, record requirement, mm-hmm. the yeah. A time. She's she's such an inspiring athlete because she just gave herself a shot. Like we, mm. I love her story because she had no, like in a way she had no reason to believe she would become that good, but she did all the things you would do if you, you know, were someone who would win NCAAs and move on after school. You know, she trained at altitude, she put in high mileage, she did the hard races and chipped away, chipped away. And she ended up being a two-time Olympian. You know, she made 2016, mm. she like lost her shoe in the 10K, came back in the 5K, made it by the skin of her teeth. Like she's just mm. a gamer, but I think she shows that like, if you put in the work, you never know where your talent can take you. So yeah. we, we definitely wanted to have Kim in the book. A brilliant role model. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have one, Liz? Yes, I've got a couple. So, (laughs) (laughs) okay. So I have to say that I really, really like Kara Goucher uh, because I started to watch like Kara Goucher, Des Linden and Shalane since the 2012 Olympics because Canada didn't send any marathoners to the Olympics that year. And so, uh, you know, I looked to you guys down south because, you know, the closest uh, and and because um you know you guys have the the uh the marathon trials which we we don't really have that and so i got to watch the marathon trials and i saw these women and so i've been following them but i really really like kara goucher because i don't know i just you know i just like feel for her and and the how she she seemed to like overcome obstacles and uh you know finally i think like a lot of her problems stemmed from lack of confidence and uh she she still managed to do really really well in the sport and uh, i guess i kind of identify with that but currently the person that i'm trying to look up to for inspiration is uh, sarah hall just because she's in her late 30s i'm 42 well almost 42 and so, you know, I want this sub three hour marathon. And so I see that she's still, you know, breaking the US record for half marathon. And I'm like, well, if she can do that, like, there's no reason that I can't break three hours for the marathon. (laughs) So yeah, I currently like she's, she's my inspiration for running, I guess. Um, The depth of women's running was such that um, when we started the book, Kira D'Amato had not yet started to run professional, like had not reignited her career. And by the time we were Mm. done, she had the American record in the marathon. So it's just crazy. All those, like Sarah, especially like she, she had a lot of years where she was not sure if she was going to continue or do like was trying to figure out the sport. So 
her longevity in the career and in the sport and um, continued progression was like, is really inspiring. She's one of my close, close friends. And I find her like to be one of the most, like, she's not like, she's very, she's a very positive person and always like continues to go, but she's a big realist too. So like she doesn't um, overanalyze things and is like very, um, very good at like, being realistic about what she's trying to do. But I think she, she attributes a lot of it with letting go of like preconceived things and allowing her, her to like reach her potential in later in her career. Cause I think for our generation, like Ryan's career was taking off and she was struggling a little bit for a while and like figuring out if like this was in it in the cards for her, if she should keep going. But like, um, realizing like letting some of that go and realizing she still enjoyed the sport and she still enjoyed what she was doing and just see what she can do really allowed her to like flourish in the sport so I think Sarah was one of the first interviews that we did yeah she was yeah yeah it's just amazing how many years though that she's been running that reminds me someone else I regret we didn't add to the book was Melinda Elmore who is yes. um, yeah. also like Canadian. like Sarah and like Kira just like finding the marathon and setting the world on fire like so inspiring which yeah she pretty much thought she was retiring and then came back yeah so you have lots of inspiration for yourself (laughs) (laughs) i do i do it's it's fantastic um and i love that seeing some of these women in your book like even even des i mean des you know in 2020 she almost made the olympic team like she was fourth yeah, so you know, she's still competing. She's still up there and it's been decades now. <laughs> I think Des is close. To, is she 39? I think she's 39. I'm not sure. Yeah, so you're seeing more and I think that was a that was a huge thing like with women having more resources and being able to like continue training with contracts and having kids and being able to continue their careers, you're seeing, we always thought like you would peak in your late twenties, early thirties. And now we're seeing even more um, growth into the late thirties. And so I think it's just, we're changing our, it's changing our mindset on what um, we originally thought just because they're, they're now having like the resources to do this long-term and we're seeing that you can go a lot longer than we thought. Yeah. It's amazing. I noticed in your, um, on your webpage for the book, there's a sort of an exercise like for goal setting and things like that. Is that just, well, that's a bit of fun going to have, have a look or would you recommend that people do that either before reading the book or after reading the book? Oh, yeah, Liz, Liz has got, Liz is showing oh, us her, printed, her out. printed out version. <laughs> we wanted some resources for younger athletes to kind of have like more of an interactive um, takeaway from the book. And so, yeah, we thought that went nicely with it. Um, and I think, I think goal setting is huge. Like, I, I don't know. I, I almost every one of the athletes I like, I know at a high level, um, and all like whenever, when I was coaching, like we would always sit down each season to like write those out. And there's a huge part of like envisioning what you're doing, putting it on paper and like seeing it through. And, And so I think like being having the courage to put that on paper or discuss it with someone is big because then it actually puts that goal into place and like and it's crazy how how often you'll actually achieve that or get close to achieving that of those things that you do so I think and and that's um I think Rogine also 
mentions that in her section of the book, but, um, but it's huge. It's hugely impactful. And, um, and it, it helps steer your, it helps steer you in the direction you want to go and helps you make decisions each day on, on how, how, if that's helpful or not helpful and what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, you can filter all your daily decisions through. Is it taking you towards or away from what you wrote down as your objectives? Yes, I, I so, know these. I know these things. My wife actually writes one hundred goals at the start of every year. Wow. Yes, that's what I say. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> but how many of those does she achieve? An awful lot. Yeah. Because uh, some of them are modest and and minor, but and, and they go right across all aspects of of life. So you know, vacations, children personal development, exercise. Yeah, I remember Alan telling me that uh, story about how they would write out uh, all these goals like in the new year. And uh, I mean, the good thing is that, you know, you can always check something off at the end of the year. So it's almost like a confidence boost. So I guess we'll we'll wrap up so that you guys can get on with your day. But um, I mean, you do have a website for the book. How she did it. Dot com. How she did it. and I'll link that in the in the show notes. But uh, do you have a, a preference for where people get a copy of the book, or it doesn't really matter to you? Yeah, anywhere. Like if you go onto our website, um, there are several places you can buy it: Target, Barnes and Noble, um, several different bookstores. So any of those that people prefer, Amazon. <laughs> Sarah and I will sign a copy if you want from our if you order it from our website <laughs> and uh, where can people follow you if they want to follow you and find out what you're up to um so I'm I'm on social media with um in, I'm mostly on Instagram um it's at Sarah Slattery and then um I also I have a Twitter but I don't use it that often I think it's Sarah Slat runs or something <laughs> yeah i can't think of your twitter name either <laughs> i don't i rarely go on twitter i'm molly huddle on both um and I, we have an instagram for our book it's at how she did a book um which we try to just use it for doing little spotlights on some of the chapters of the book um we haven't been as active on it lately but we will get back on there so yeah we, anytime we have a little highlight or a message or a women's w- running wisdom wednesday we'll put it up <laughs> great stuff and probably uh probably our last question what's next for you what's what's next on the agenda molly and i have a couple things that we're trying to decide like molly just had a baby uh so she we've been um we've been transitioning like out, outside of that but and just with the launch of the book but um there's a few things that we're like looking into but we've we told you we have uh several other stories we'd like to highlight and there's other ideas for books in the future. So we're not, we're not hundred percent. We have some ideas, but haven't like put them into place yet. Yeah. And we really want to pair the book with like mentoring athletes in some way, in some more structured way. So we're kind of, we have a lot of plans to put on. We have a lot of goals to put on paper. We probably have a hundred goals we could do for 2023 right sarah (laughs) it's not a lack of ideas it's a lack of ability to find the time to execute we need to clone ourselves (laughs) i can recommend retirement but the trouble is uh that's going to be a while for you guys our goal and our our main goal in writing this is to help other girls have long careers and and see more girls continue in the sport long term um yeah whether it be like in a professional setting or 
just continue to set goals and achieve goals in running and have healthy life. So um, we want to get this to as many young girls and parents and coaches as possible so that they have this knowledge and can help. Absolutely. Just in time for people to think about their Christmas presents. Yes. Um, yep. <laughs> and also think about setting their goals for the new year. Yes, yes so of course. It's a, it's a double benefit. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Thank you again. Alan, do you want to start with your opinion? Uh, yeah, let me just give my summary. Well, the athlete stories are super well done and nicely laid out. And I think they're long enough so you get a good insight into the athlete, but short enough to keep your interest. And there's another one coming around. So nice balance there. Um, as I said during the chat, the best story for me was Kim Connolly. And if you are a runner of any description, go to YouTube, find the 2012 Olympic qualification for the 5,000 meters, which was held in Eugene, and watch it. I would challenge you not to have to watch it at least twice because of Sarah, of Kim Connolly's um, performance in that. There are some excellent insights and advice that we can all use. Um, one of my favorites was um, um, Marla Runyon, who says, distance running is a sport of faith. That, that sort of resounded with me because what she means, not that you have to believe in God um, to do it, but that you have to have faith that all your training is going to work because you can't test it out. When you're running a marathon, you only find out on marathon day that it's going to work. You have to have faith that all your training is is working. Uh, the photos and performance summary pages for each athlete are really good. We talked about the PRs. We thought that was good. And the funny section at the back, sort of mm -hmm. little outtakes of funny things, Portaloo problems with elite athletes and stuff like that. It's kind of fun. I think the book's also good for the 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 boys as well as the ladies. You know, probably everything except the hormonal health uh, section applies. And even that is important to you if you're a coach or you're you're the parent of a a female athlete. The book's a great read. The stories are excellent, but also I think it's a coffee table book you can leave out and dip into if you want. Good Christmas gift. So uh, I guess I'll echo some of that. I, I love the stories, but I also love the look of the book. I thought the layout was perfect for uh, fans of the sport. Each athlete profile had like a large photo of the athlete and all their running PBs from high school all the way through college and into their professional years. So really well done. Um, of course, not all of them had all like all of the categories uh, of times, but but a lot of them, you know, did have uh, did have all of those. And um, it was very diverse in terms of uh, athletes of different nationalities and uh, different events. So uh, I would say even, uh, you know, there was 400 through to marathon because some of the uh, runners were uh, 400, 800, 1500 meter uh, athletes. So a lot of track athletes, even uh, steeplechase runners were were featured in there. So so that was great because it included um, athletes from different events. I loved all the names that I was able to recognize, uh, like Paula Radcliffe, Dina Castor, uh, two of my favorites, which is uh, Cara Goucher and Des Linden. And of course, I mentioned that my, my current inspiration, Sarah Hall, she was also in there. But uh, there were also runners that I I didn't know about before, but I also found inspiring. And one of those was the uh, the cover athlete, Patty uh, Catalano Dillon. 
She was a Native American runner, and it, it, it seemed like she would just run everything at 100% effort. Um, and that's kind of how the, the cover picture looks. She's... Yep, she looks like she's giving it 110. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. Um, I think the book is great, um, you know, for fans of the sport. It's also motivation for, you know, everybody else. And it's inspiring because, you know, all of these athletes have had challenges. And uh, there is a surprisingly long list of serious injuries that some of them have overcome. They didn't just recover, but they also got to the next level in their performance and it can help us all believe in our own capability and our own body's ability to repair itself. Great book. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to another episode of Running Book Reviews. A big thank you to the publisher, Penguin Random House, for providing review copies of the book to Liz and I. Uh, a great big thank you to Molly and Sarah for spending time with us today. If you would like to leave us some feedback about, about how we can improve our podcast or want to suggest a book for us to review in future episodes, leave us a comment on social media. Uh, on Facebook and Instagram, we are Running Book Reviews. And on Twitter, we are Reviews underscore Running. Please also follow us on social media to find out about episodes when they're released. Or you can just subscribe to the podcast on your favorite streaming platform. If you've been listening to us for a while and you'd like to try and contribute, if you're enjoying the podcast, spread the word. Tell your friends about us or share a link of your favorite episode with a running partner. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This is how you listen to the podcast or you can rate us on Spotify. We're also on Buy Me A Coffee where you can read and listen to some special extras and outtakes. Um, and if you want, you can buy us a coffee. That's all for today from Running Book Reviews. Bye. Bye.